Hey ladies, welcome to the Maple Avenue Women's Bible Study Podcast. I'm glad you're here listening. How are you doing today? It's a weird season of life, isn't it? I know we all come to this podcast carrying different burdens, dealing with different problems. Our daily lives are so different from each other. But we all have this in common. We decided to come and hear what God's Word says today. Your faith may be great right now, It may be small, it may be non-existent, but you're here, and that's what matters. Today we'll look at two different types of people who come to Jesus. They come with different heart postures for different reasons, and they get such opposite responses from Jesus. One group, the religious leaders, gets condemnation. The other, the lowly and needy Gentiles, gets mercy. Why doesn't everyone receive Jesus' mercy? Do you ever wonder that? We all need it, don't we? So why then does Jesus sometimes look on people with compassion and at other times look up at them on, in anger? And why does his reaction sometimes not line up to how his disciples react or how we would react? A few years ago, I was reading the series The Lord of the Rings to my daughter Anne, At one point in the middle of this epic story, two of the main characters, Frodo and Sam, face a terrifying spider named Shelob, who is described in the book as an evil thing in spider form. She is wicked and lustful and cunning. After a terrifying battle with her, in which you think, surely this is the end of the tale because there's no way they can get away from her, she is bested by the underdog Sam and she crawls away defeated. Much to my dismay, my daughter exclaimed, I feel so sorry for her. I remember laughing and saying, she deserved it. She was evil. Don't have sympathy for her, the bad guy. And even today, as I was telling Anne that I was going to use that example, she said, I still feel sorry for her. It was clear to me that Shelob deserved no mercy, but not to Anne. Well, what about the religious leaders in Jesus's day? Well, it turns out I actually have the same problem my daughter has because there have been times where I feel sorry for the Pharisees and all their cronies. They come on the scene and everyone automatically thinks, aha, here's the enemy. Dramatic villainous music plays in the background and we know Jesus, he's going to put them in their place because those good for nothings deserve it. But sometimes I think, how did they get to this spot? Surely they were trying to do the right thing, right? How did they become the object of Jesus' criticism? Don't they deserve his mercy? I mean, these were, after all, the Jewish religious leaders, the ones that knew the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone. Should not they have been the ones with the greatest faith? Well, knowledge, as we'll see, does not always equal belief. Part of my inner debate is that I relate to them so often. I am self-righteous. I like to point out when others do wrong. I want to be praised, and I bristle at correction. Can you relate to that? The common flight of sin makes me sympathize with them. But there's something more serious going on here. It's not just that they're sinners. It's the rejection of truth not their lack of perfection that is the key issue. 
There is a clear line that Jesus draws in the sand during his ministry on earth. You are either for him or you're against him. There's no in-between and there's no sympathy for those who are against him. Today we'll see the line drawn and we'll see the results of who ends up on either side. Last week we learned about the Messiah who walks on water, he multiplies food, he heals the sick, and he's the one who's who the weak have their gaze on, and it's their focus of their faith. Turning to Matthew 15, our chapter for today, faith is yet again at the center of the discussion. As Jesus draws his line, we see that on one side is true faith and true worship, and they all find their place in a merciful Messiah. And what's on the other side of the line that Jesus draws? Vain worship and spiritual blindness. Remember with me that at the end of chapter 14, Jesus was in the nowhere town of Gennesaret. Many Jews turned to him in faith, and even impetuous, fearful Peter proclaimed Christ's kingship. So what's going to happen next? Let's read 15, just the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So the Pharisees and the scribes are back on the scene. They traveled almost 100 kilometers from Jerusalem just to talk to Jesus. They come with guns loaded, ready for a fight. They have a question. Why do your disciples not wash their hands? And they rebuke Jesus, saying, They are breaking the tradition of the elders. The religious leaders have a genuine religious concern that has led them to make a serious accusation. What tradition are the scribes and the Pharisees talking about? They're talking about the ceremonial washing of hands before eating. Jewish tradition held that doing this was not for good hygiene, like we would today, but for purity's sake. They were concerned with being unclean, contaminated, defiled by something they touched. They had a whole ceremony they would do before they ate. And it was tradition for the religious elders of the day to follow such rules. And in their eyes, it had bearing on what kind of person they were, on how seriously they took religion, and on on how holy they were in the eyes of God. But if you tried to look up in the Old Testament, the place where it says to wash your hands when you eat, so as to keep yourself from being unclean, you wouldn't find it. It wasn't a law. It has roots in some of the Levitical laws of cleanliness for the Levites and for others, and these laws were meant to separate the people of God from the rest of the nations. For example, it was commanded uh, to do this after con- contacting various things that brought uncleanness, like bodily discharge or dealing with the dead or diseased. But there's no law from God about ceremonial hand washing. Their concern was merely one of compliance with their oral tradition that had been passed down. So they put their question forth, and let's hear how Jesus responds. We're going to read 15, 3 through 20, his whole response. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, 
you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus has a lot to say. And interestingly, he doesn't even mention their question of hand washing until the very last verse, verse 20. They bring up man-made tradition. Jesus brings up God's spoken commands. While they're concerned with the seeming lack of holiness of the disciples, Jesus is concerned with the glaring sin in their hearts. Something greater has been broken than a tradition, something not made by men, but by God. Look back with me at verse 3. While the religious leaders were busy being concerned about clean hands, they were actually forsaking God's commands. These men knew the Old Testament scriptures well, but they ignored it. In verse 4, Jesus quotes two commands from Exodus that they are breaking. Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. Yet the religious leaders had a practice called Corbin, as stated in Mark's retelling of the story. What it is, is it's where one could declare their money as an offering towards God. Their wealth was dedicated to belong to the Lord after they died, but they themselves had access to it until they died. So they would use this as an excuse for why they could not give any of their money towards supporting their aging parents. So a clear command from God, honor your parents, was replaced by a new man-made tradition that helped them to sideswipe their command, the command. And in, in essence, it was a way to get out of obedience to God. So here we see that what started out as a rebuke from the religious leaders suddenly spiraled into something else. It's like the time James and I got into a huge argument over the word you. We were newlyweds, deeply in love, and on a road trip from Illinois to California. It started out as a tiny question over this one little thing. I asked, what happened to some of my favorite songs on your iPod? They're gone. And after he confessed, he deleted them. We argued for hours. But what did we argue about? Not the deleted songs. No, no, no. And all you married couples understand what I'm saying here. 
We didn't argue about the deleted songs. We argued about something entirely different. It was all about the word you and how James used it as he tried to explain his reasoning for deleting the songs. I won't get into the gritty details because it doesn't matter. And it's a long story. But the main thing I need to confess here now is that he was actually right and I was actually wrong. But don't tell him I said that. My point is this. Sometimes our little questions expose greater issues. In the case of the Pharisees, part of their problem was that they weren't even asking the right questions. So Jesus turned the tables on them, exposing their hypocrisy. He cast two judgments on them. First, they have made the word of God void. And secondly, they are hypocrites. Jesus is drawing the line. You invalidate God's commands, you have no place with me. You teach one thing but do evil in your hearts, you have no place with me. In verses 8 to 9, he compares them to faithless Israel from Isaiah 29. He says, though their words honor him, their hearts are far away from him. They worship him in vain, and they teach the things of man as if they are directly from God. This is a severe rebuke. Jesus then turns from the Pharisees, calls the crowds to himself, and in verse 10, he speaks a short parable. He says, I'm going to read just 10 and 11. He called the people to him and said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Jesus uses the Pharisees' questioning to bring up a whole new issue, and it's actually the issue he came to earth to address. The issue is, what do we do with our inner filth? Jesus starts by showing what, exactly, what actually makes us unclean, unworthy, unholy sinners. He says nothing that goes through our lips defiles us, but it's actually what comes out of our mouths that does. The Gospel of Mark adds a comment that Matthew leaves out that by saying that by Jesus is saying this parable that he's declaring all foods clean. This is actually a remarkable statement and one that is probably lost on all of us modern readers. For thousands of years, the Jewish people were commanded to follow laws regarding what they could and couldn't eat. And as mentioned before, there were strict laws about how to keep oneself clean. And what you ate was a major part of it. So things like pork and certain birds and reptiles were no-nos. This was to set the people apart from other nations. Unlike the Pharisees' hand-washing nonsense, this was actually a real command from God. Don't eat certain things. Jesus had been taking on man-made tradition versus God's commands. Now it seems like he's pitting God's commands in the Old Testament about food against his own words right now. But we know that more must be going on here than that, because Jesus is not making God's word void. You see, the religious leaders were concerned with outward defilement, but Jesus shows them what true defilement is. As Jesus explains it to his disciples in verse 16, we see that nothing can make us unclean. Not what we eat, not what our hands have on them. Why? Because defilement is naturally already there in our hearts. 
It's been there since the day we were born, not since the first day we soiled our hands. It's actually why Jesus needed to come. Because the Levitical laws and the sacrifices could never be kept perfectly. Jesus would become the sacrifice that would make people clean. He didn't come to make God's word void. He came to fulfill God's word. And here's why Jesus is bringing all this up. He's saying, Pharisees, you are looking at the wrong thing and you are blind. They could not see that following the traditions of man is not what makes us holy, nor is following the commands of God what makes us holy. We can do nothing to clean ourselves. It's like trying to take a bath in a tub full of mud. You're in the right place. You have your bar of soap, but you try and you try to no avail. Why isn't this working? Why am I still covered in mud? Washing our hands, doing good deeds, eating certain food, reading our Bibles, giving money, going to church. None of these things deal with the real problem of a dirty heart. Because we all know too well it's easy to look devout, but be dead inside. And that's the message we need to hear today. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, all of these things listed in verse 19. Haven't we all experienced some of these in our own hearts in some form? We must know what truly defiles us. Because if we don't know what it is, we cannot accept what truly saves us. So we see that my sympathy for the Pharisees is wrong. We do share a common problem of sin. But theirs is not just a matter of sin. It's a matter of blindness. And their unwillingness to see fault, their clinging to sin, their forsaking truth, and leading others by the hand into hell. And it's also wrong to scoff at the sin of the Pharisees and think we can never be like them. We can. So we must guard our hearts and cling to Jesus. Did Jesus come to save them? Yes. But their response was rejection. Mercy was actually staring at them in the face. What could truly make them clean was right in arm's reach. So their fate was to be rooted up and thrown out. They were offended by Jesus, but they were no longer a part of his covenant people. Let this be a warning to us. We cannot let hypocrisy have a foothold in our lives. And we cannot think we can do anything to make ourselves pure before God. We can't. We must repent and bring our unclean hands to the only one who can wash them. In him alone, we can find forgiveness and holiness. So this first encounter exposed stubborn rebellion and showed what true defilement was. Jesus responded to them with judgment. What comes next in Matthew 15 is such a different story. It's beautiful and it has far-reaching implications. I've always thought it was a strange story, but studying it has helped me to see the mercy and kindness flowing throughout it. So let's read the next story in 1521 through 28. 
And Jesus went away from there, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus withdraws a few hours' walk away to the hill country of the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon. Not only has he physically separated himself from the Jewish towns, but this is a kind of symbolic move as well. He attempts to find solitude from the crowds, but he has a relentless pursuer. Instead of accusations from Jewish leaders, he now hears pleas for help from a, from a woman in need, and he ignores her. Here we see a lowly Gentile woman crying out to Jesus. Matthew refers to her as a Canaanite, though she is actually not one. She is a Syrophoenician. And if you think that word is hard to say, try spelling it. Syrophoenician. It took me a while. Actually, I copied and pasted it because I couldn't figure it out. Mark describes her as a Syrophoenician in his gospel. Canaanite was just a term that must have been used as an expression just to kind of say that she was a part of a group of non-Jew enemies like the Canaanites of Old Testament history. So Matthew uses it in a very distinct way here. This woman's daughter is severely possessed by a demon. I cannot even begin to imagine the terror of demon possession. Nor can I grasp how utterly desperate this woman must feel. Her daughter is a social outcast, and she would have been considered unclean. There's that word again. The mother, for taking care of her, would have also been considered unclean and an outcast. This woman comes to Jesus frantic, crying out for mercy. She even calls him the son of David. This tips us off (coughs) that she might have some knowledge of the scriptures. How different she was from the religious leaders. They came in their vanity and arrogance with accusations on their lips. She came in her humiliated state, not knowing where else to turn. She needed help. But instead of acceptance, she finds annoyance. The disciples are bothered by her. They beg Jesus not to save her daughter, but to send her away. And then in verse 24, Jesus finally responds in such an alarming way, in seeming indifference and coldness. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His mission, he says, is to try and rescue Israel, which ironically, as we just witnessed, some of them didn't even want to be rescued. The people he came for didn't want him, but this woman still did. She kneels before him, not shaken by his words, and again implores him, Lord, help me. 
And he says, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Is he calling her a dog? Is he calling all of us non-Jews a dog? Yes. But to be fair, though dog was a derogatory name Gentiles were often called, Jesus actually uses a soft word that means house dog like a pet. Kind of better. If we get past the weirdness of his reply, we can see what's going on here. Let me give you a little backstory. The kingdom of heaven was exclusively for the people of God. The scriptures from Genesis to Malachi pointed to the specialness of Israel, not because of the righteousness, but because of God's faithful covenant to them. He saved them from Egypt and slavery there. He rained down food from heaven for them. He set them up with kings and he delivered them from enemies. God's heart was for the Jews. He was preparing a place for his people with him. So Jesus seems to be testing her here. Why should he give perfectly good food to an animal? Or why should I do anything for someone outside of my people? It would be a waste. Her reply is humble, yet bold. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. J.C. Ryle tells this exchange like this, retells it like this. Yes, Lord, that's fine. Satisfy them first. I'll take the crumbs. I'll take the leftovers. It was like Jesus said, the children have to be satisfied first. And she responded by saying, Jesus, so you're saying there's a chance? End quote. J.C. Ryle goes on to explain that Jesus says to her something he had never said to an Israelite. Your faith is great. Jesus only commends the faith of Gentiles in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? Her faith was great. Think of the faith of Peter on the water. He had little faith. Think of the faith of the Pharisees. They had none at all. Yet this Gentile, this unclean woman, caring for her unclean daughter, this lowest of society, was the one with great faith. The juxtaposition of the story next to the story of the Pharisees and scribes cannot be lost on us. What does Jesus commend here? A faith that needs a savior and cries out to him. Can you relate to this? This desperation, this humiliating state? I know I can. I've been there. This is what we do with sin. We cry out for mercy. Remember the passage that Jesus quotes earlier from Isaiah 29, the one where he condemns the religious leaders and says in vain, do they worship me? Remember that one? Well, the entire chapter of Isaiah is pronouncing devastation on Jerusalem. The whole thing is a judgment. It's saying the nations will fight against Jerusalem and Jerusalem will fall. Then it says, That this covenant people, that because this covenant people of God have rejected him, he will close their eyes to being able to understand his word. In Isaiah 29, 29, 11, and 12, he says, all of his ways will be like a book closed to them. They will not even be able to read it. The revelation of his coming salvation will be lost on them. God drew a line in the sand in Isaiah's time. You reject me, Israel, I'll reject you, and the book is closed. 
But a glimmer of hope comes just a few verses down in Isaiah 29, 18-19. It says, and I'll read it, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. God's heart is for everyone who is poor and needy and meek. His plan was for all who cry out to him to have their eyes open to the truth. Jesus is the one opening the words of the book who all, to all who want to read it. And this woman is one of them. The meek shall obtain fresh joy, it says, and that's her. Anyone who realizes their need for him, his heart is for all of the nations. It was always clear that God loved all these all of those created in his image. And the New Testament details this astounding shift. So now the kingdom is open to all. We are the dogs here. We are not an afterthought to Jesus, though. We get to be at his table. We're a part of God's marvelous plan for the nations from the beginning of when he called pagan Abraham to be his own. Jesus is merciful to this woman. He heals her daughter, and their life would be changed forever. But there's more in this last part of our chapter. More healing, more faith, more right responses to the Messiah. We'll see that Gentile response to Jesus increases, and little by little we'll see the kingdom of heaven beginning to grow from the minuscule mustard seed into a seedling. Because that's the heart of the gospel that life grows in unexpected places. Let's read the final part of our chapter, verses 29 to 39. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get? Where do we? Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave thanks, and sorry, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So we see the gospel message is growing as great crowds are coming to Jesus. Did you catch who came? The blind, the sick, the lame, the mute. Verse 31 echoes the prophecies about what the Messiah would be like that we learned about a few weeks ago from Isaiah. Here we see Jesus doing those things. 
And the people are praising the God of Israel. This phrase, the God of Israel, tips us off that this was most likely a Gentile crowd. It's as if these people were saying, that God, that God, the one that Israel worships, we will praise him now. He will be our God. And then our chapter ends with a familiar scene. Just like last week, we learned about the feeding of the 5,000. This miracle is very similar, so I'm actually not going to say much except for this. The most important thing to note is its location among the Gentiles. It can't be missed that this is yet again Jesus extending his mercy to those outside of the covenant people of Israel. Healing, miracles, bread for all from the very hands of Jesus. His compassion moved him to action on behalf of the hungry. He didn't want to send them away. He, he helped the Jews who had no food and he had compassion on them. And now he has compassion to meet the needs of the Gentiles. Who did the Messiah come for? Anyone who needs him. As we, study, as we end our study of chapter 15, let's consider these two different encounters with Jesus. What was the difference between these two encounters? On the one hand, there was spiritual blindness, a tight-fisted hold on tradition, vain worship, and hatred for God's laws. On the other hand was meekness, eyes opened to their need, and the knowledge that the Messiah was the only one who could help them. What's the same about these two encounters? Jesus. The same Jesus came for both. But mercy was given to the ones who asked. And that's the key. May we be women who come to Jesus for mercy. He's willing to give it. The words of a song we regularly sing on Sunday morning seemed a fitting note to end on. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's pray. God, we need your mercy and we need your grace. Open our eyes if we are blind. Open our hearts if they are cold. And call those of us who are listening who don't know us to you. Strengthen us, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Amen.